How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Chris Masterjohn, an expert in nutrition and specifically micronutrients. Now, Chris has been through the pain and suffering of embracing a diet because he thought it was healthy, only to wreck his body and mind. And he's been through the path of healing. He learned the hard way that each of us is unique and that we all change with time. Your needs are not mine, mine are not Chris's. Chris's aren't now what they were 10 years ago and yours won't be in 10 years what they are now. That's why we need a recipe to know exactly what's missing, what's there in excess and what's out of balance. So over the next hour, Chris and I are gonna discuss nutritional deficiencies you may be at risk of, the very popular diet that wrecked Chris's health and the eating lifestyle that he adopted which fixed it. Finally, you're gonna learn the truth about fat loss, one of my favorite topics. Now, before we get into it, Chris has made an amazing tool for testing nutritional status to achieve the good health that you deserve called Testing Nutritional Status, the Ultimate Cheat Sheet. It's a comprehensive system for managing nutritional status that includes lab testing, dietary and lifestyle analysis, and recording signs and symptoms you may have of nutritional deficiencies or imbalances. You can read all about it at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash genius. Again, that's Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Masterjohn, M-A-S-T-E-R-J-O-H-N, phd.com slash genius, and use code genius to get 20% off. This episode of The Genius Life is brought to you by my good friends at Birch Benders. Birch Benders makes a line of paleo and keto-approved pancake and waffle mixes. Now, you guys know that I am not a fan of processed foods, but if you are craving pancakes or waffles now and then, the ingredients that they use are all super sound and provide a healthier version of that treat that we all grew up eating lots and lots of. I don't know if you were me, but I grew up on pancakes and I love them. So it's nice to be able to have a version of the pancake that is made using very healthful ingredients. You're gonna feel great afterwards and um, no guilt. So if you'd like to give Birch Bender's pancake and waffle mix a try, again, they make a paleo version and then they make a keto version. The keto version is very low in carbs and they are not full of added sweeteners and fake fiber extracts. All you gotta do is go to birchbenders.com and use promo code MAX and you'll save 15% off. Again, that is birchbenders.com. Use promo code MAX and you will get 15% off of their delicious paleo and keto waffle and pancake mix. All you do, if I recall, is add water and then voila, get done with some pancakes. All right, guys, before we get into it, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. Um, Share the episode that you're about to listen to on your social media. Take a screen grab, post it up on your IG stories or leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this episode of the show. That helps to draw new listeners to it. And you know what they say, nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. So help me spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. That would be very much appreciated. Finally, to discover my latest projects, things that I'm excited about, and to have a pipeline to my brain so that you can have access to scientific studies that I think are relevant, products that I'm digging, books that I recommend, please head over to maxlugavere.com and join my newsletter. All you gotta do is enter your first and last name and we will be in touch. All right, guys, without further ado, I'm excited to get into this chat with Chris Masterjohn. Um, He's a brilliant dude, so I am uh, pumped for you to get to know him. All right, here we go. Chris Masterjohn, thank you so much for being here with me, man. Thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, my pleasure. So I'm a fan of your work. I, uh, we were at this amazing party in Beverly Hills. I forget what the party was for. It was for Wild Ventures. That's right. And I saw you walking around, and I was like, I know this guy because I've seen like you know tons of his videos. I'm a fan of his podcast, and there you were. 
So for my audience, for people that are not necessarily familiar with what your work and what you're trying to achieve in this world, why don't you share your background? Sure. Uh, I have a PhD in nutritional sciences and I did the standard academic track for a while. I was assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College. And right now what I do is I translate deep, deep science into practical stuff that people can use. So I feel like I got a very, I wouldn't say unique, but I think that it's fairly rare to be able to cross that bridge. And so having a, a, a background in doing 10 years of experimental and laboratory research and being able to really understand some of the nuances of how you do science, to have that background and also have even an interest and willingness in communicating with people who don't have a background like that, I think allows me to get into a very rare niche of trying to bridge those gaps. And I think ultimately I'm a kind of a problem solver. I could have been a programmer or any other kind of innovator. So immersing myself in that science and coming up with new, new ways of seeing it, new ways that we can translate it practically is where I think my creativity really thrives. And then you know, this, you want the background story to, to why I do that stuff or well, how did you become interested in, in nutrition specifically? Yeah. Um, just seeing the power of nutrition. So when I was a teenager, my mom had fibromyalgia and she was in constant chronic pain. She often didn't sleep, but I often didn't sleep because she was in so much pain, mm. you know, just to the moaning and everything, you know? And so I watched her go through her own journey where she went through macrobiotics, yoga, tai chi, herbalism, all kinds of things. And it's hard to really know which one of those components or if it was all of it worked. But uh, she was, you know, I, she might not be 100% pain-free, but she's she doesn't have what she had before. Just radical transformation in terms of... Uh, being able to sleep, not being in constant pain, uh, having the body work correctly. And so that was an early influence that made me very interested in incorporating nutrition into one of the things that I uh, looked at encyclopedically. <laughs> and, um, and then my interest in that kind of led me into my own health problems. So I experimented with a lot of diets. The zone diet was one of the first ones that I was interested in. And then that led me eventually into veganism. I read a book, Diet for a New America, that convinced me that both for the welfare of the animals, for the health of the planet, and for my own health, I should go vegan. So I eased into it. I went, what happened was I went vegetarian. I convinced my girlfriend to go vegetarian. Then my girlfriend reads the book and she's like, Chris, why aren't we vegan? <laughs> and so she convinced me to go vegan. And... While I was vegan, my mind fell apart. My teeth fell apart. Some other things fell apart too, mostly mm. my mind and teeth. So I had anxiety disorders that started when I was a teenager, but they got 10x worse when I was a vegan. Ooh. So uh, I feel like if you read a textbook of all the different manifestations of anxiety disorders, I had all of them. <laughs> so... A, a day at that, uh, like some of the things that might have happened around that time would be I would want to eat something and I would be convinced that it was drugged or poisoned. So I'd examine the packaging 
and I wouldn't be able to find the evidence. So I just keep in examining it until I created the evidence. Like I accidentally ripped some hole in something and I was convinced it was there already. And then I would just examine the food until I convinced myself that I couldn't eat it. And then I would get, then I would get so angry at myself for not being able to eat anything that I'd throw the food across the room. Oh my God. So there's that. Uh, I also, I didn't really remember this, but I was recently talking to my mom and she was telling me how during that time she brought me to the emergency room a number of times when I was in peak panic attacks and after talking through it with her and trying to remember, I, some of that starts to come back. But basically, my memory from that time is very, very hazy. And I went to the dentist to for a normal dental visit, and I found out that I had over a dozen cavities. I needed two root canals. And this is all in one dental visit. And I'm like, man, my teeth are falling apart. And so at the time, I'm an undergrad majoring in history, and I'm working in the undergraduate dining hall, hmm. and my boss is into nutrition. And my boss was into drinking raw milk, and he gave me a pamphlet about raw milk produced by the farm that he got his milk from. And in the pamphlet, they talked about the work of Weston Price, who is a pioneer in nutritional anthropology. And Price was... He traveled the world largely trying to figure out how to be immune from tooth decay. And he sort of accidentally stumbled into the fact that traditional diets before the transition to modern refined foods were very diverse, but they were all very nutrient dense and provided profound protection against all degenerative disease. But for me at this time, my eyes go to that freedom from tooth decay thing. I'm like, I just got out of the dentist, have a dozen cavities, I need two root canals freedom from tooth decay. I want in on that. <laughs> so I go up to the, I think it was the 24th floor of the U University of Massachusetts Amherst Library, very tall library, and uh, got the 1945 edition of Nutrition and Physical Degeneration off the shelves, which was Weston Price's magnum opus, and read that. And that basically changed everything. I started incorporating principles, not just, it wasn't just going back to being an omnivore. It was seeking out the most nutrient-dense animal products, which were things that I wasn't eating before. Anyway, most of my friends were eating who were omnivores, things like liver and heart, bones, shellfish, um, things that all these cultures that he was studying who had learned over generations how to be healthy, um, they all incorporated these different sources of very nutrient-dense animal products. Um and as I started incorporating these principles, I didn't realize this was happening until after it happened. I was in the dining hall. I watched this guy pick up a stack of plates and then take one from the middle or bottom of the deck. And I look at the guy and I look away and I think, man, that guy's nuts. Why doesn't he just take the top plate? And then about 10, 15 seconds later, Suddenly, I remember that a few months ago, I had always done that, exactly what that guy was doing. And I would often spend 20 minutes trying to look for a glass that was clean, among the clean glasses, that was clean enough for me to drink out of. And it was at that moment that I realized that at some point in the last three months, I don't know when, that 
I had undergone a complete revolution in my mental health hmm. and completely forgotten about what life was like three months ago. Wow. And so I literally have no idea if I was cured in one minute and in one minute forgot what life had been like the minute before, or if I was gradually cured over three months and proportionally my memory was gradually lost in proportion to how much I got better. I don't know. I just know that three months later, after I had instituted all these dietary principles about nutrient density, suddenly um, I had to have my memory jogged of how crazy I was a few months before that. So that was what made me ultimately go down the academic path. At first, I wanted to be a medical doctor with a history degree. You know, you graduate with that, you need a bunch of science classes, right? So I start the science classes. And while I'm starting the science classes, my professors are telling me I have, I have the brain for research. People I work with are telling me the same thing. I'm starting to fall in love with molecules and biochemicals and all the unseen layers of life. And I start making a, a modest career for myself writing about nutrition requiring me to read hundreds of scientific papers and come up with my own hypotheses. And I start realizing no one's going to research these hypotheses unless I do. And so all those things kind of collided together to say, you know what, I'm really better suited to doing a PhD in nutrition research rather than doing medical school. And so that's what fed me into the path that I'm on now. That's amazing. So when you were undergoing all these, uh, sh the, the, when you underwent this shift in your mental health, mm. you were still an undergraduate. And now at this point, obviously you have this breadth of knowledge. You have your PhD. You're one of the leading experts in nutrition that I would, you know, that I would cite. What do you think it was about that dietary shift going from veganism to embracing all these animal products? Like what, what, what would you credit for? What aspect of the, of you know an omnivorous diet would you credit for helping your brain? Yeah. So, on the one hand, there's definitely a common theme here that affects many people because we can see in the literature that vegetarianism and veganism are very strongly associated with mental disorders, especially anxiety uh, and depression and panic and things like that. There's a lot of questions in that data about what causes what even to the point of, is it that people with mental disorders are more likely to adopt vegetarian diets? And there's some evidence for that because if you look at when people, when the onset appears to be of someone's mental disorder, quite often it's before they became a vegetarian. It could be that, uh, or it could be that vegetarian causes mental disorders um, even despite that because you, um, you, you, uh, well, first of all, um, it could be it could it could come first for some people and come later for other people, despite um, despite on average for some diseases coming earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but also, there could be underlying things that predispose you to both. Like, so for example, maybe you have a personality trait of perfectionism, and you know, maybe if that's kept in bounds, it just helps you do really good work. But maybe if it gets out of control, it tries, it the, drives you to find all different kinds of ways of perfecting your diet. And mm -hmm. one of those is to adopt vegetarianism or veganism. And yet it's also driving you to um, 
to try to perfect everything else in your life to the point where it drives you nuts. Like those are all possibilities. Um, And yet I think that you could make a very strong case for uh, even in a general population level, there being nutrients that are in animal products that are very important for mental health. So the most obvious one that virtually everyone who cares about this knows about is vitamin B12. And in the general population, the average person who's B12 deficient is deficient because they're not absorbing it. And that's usually associated with age, especially with gastrointestinal disturbances. Um, But if you look at vegetarians and vegans, you know, the only reason that vegetarianism and veganism is not the primary cause of B12 deficiency is because most people aren't vegetarians or vegans. So you're looking at 15% of the elderly in the general population are deficient, but then 70, over 70% of lacto vegetarians and over 90% of vegans are B12 deficient. Wow. If, if by deficient, you mean you look at their blood work and you find biochemical evidence of deficiency. So maybe they don't have, it's not over 90% of vegans have clinical signs and symptoms. It's when you take their blood and you look for B12 deficiency, you find it. Um, So there's that. Yeah. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you uh, make the transition to a vegan diet from say an omnivore, uh, you know, a more omnivorous uh, dietary pattern, you might not necessarily feel the, you know, quote unquote, clinical effects of a B12 deficiency right away because don't our livers have some capacity to store B12? Yeah. um, B12 is super interesting because you have the theoretical potential to store 30 years worth of B12. But whether you do that really depends on whether you've been good at stocking up on B12. And one of the things that's really interesting about B12 is that you can only absorb about a day's worth of B12 at a time. And the average person is just barely scraping by the RDA. So if you're eating clams, you're eating lots of B12. If you're eating liver, you're getting lots of B12. If you're eating oysters, you're getting quite a bit of B12. But other than that, you're just scraping by, you know, like if you want to get B12 from milk, you need the three glasses of milk a day that they talk about. If you want to get B12 from meat to hit the RDA, you got to eat meat at every meal, you know? Um, So if you were focusing on nutrient density and, and the thing is, if you're trying to get like max out your B12 storage with liver, clams, and oysters, you don't actually need to eat that much. We're talking like eight grams of liver at a meal is going to give you a day's worth of B12. Wow. Like, this is not a lot of liver. Right. Uh, same thing with, with clams. And so, you know, if you eat a couple clams a day or a couple clams a meal, then every meal you're getting a day's worth of B12. And so every day you're getting three days worth of B12. That's one, that's that day plus two days of storage. Wow. Right? So if you do that for, uh, for 15 years, then you're going to have 30 years of stored B12. You could probably go vegan with no supplements and you know, 30 years later, you could have like still, that maybe your homocysteine isn't elevated, which would be a, an early sign of B12 deficiency. Um, maybe you're just fine because it literally takes you 30 years to get into any negative spot at all. But that, that hardly anyone's doing that. It, even, even with the digestive problems that affect elderly people. So, 15% of people over 65 are B12 deficient. 
if you had 30 years of stored B12 and your digestive system got bad enough to cause B12 deficiency by the time you're 65, you can make it to 95 before you actually run deficient, right? right? But just none of us none of us are focusing on on nutrient density in that way. And so one person might go deficient right away when they go vegan because their stores are terrible. Another person might last a few months. Another person might, might last a few years. Another person might last 10 years. And that's one of the one, that's one of the reasons that it's really difficult to tease apart what actually happens to vegans because we have so little in the way of tracing someone from when they go vegan to what happens after, right? Mm-hmm. You can take people who are currently vegan and ask them, and that the, the vegetarianism and mental disorder studies, is that's what they do. They take uh, current vegans, current vegetarians, they ask them, they ask them about their mental disorders, and then they try now to figure out before when did the when was the onset of the mental disorder. And actually, this is a point that I wanted to make that I my um, that I forgot to make before, is that when you're asking someone, you're saying, okay, I'm going to take a pool of a hundred vegetarians and a pool of a hundred people, a hundred omnivores. I'm going to look at what is the rate of mental disorders? And let's say panic disorder is twice as common in the vegetarians. Then you say, okay, what came first? And you start asking the vegetarians with panic disorder about their history to figure out when was the first onset of their panic disorder. Well, you might conclude that the panic disorder came first because the first sign of panic disorder came up when they were 13 and they went vegetarian when they were 20. Well, that you would find that if, if you talked to me because I had panic attacks when I was 13. But it wasn't until after I was vegan that I was not eating any of the food in my house and throwing it across the room in anger and winding up in the emergency room at the height of a panic attack, right? So it's like, what caused what? Well, there was an underlying predisposition to anxiety. The the veganism is what made that 10x worse and a serious thing that was ruining my life, right? So it's (laughs) not a question of did the veganism cause it or not. It's like, what was the outcome with veganism versus the outcome... Um, without it. And you don't get that sense when you're just trying to do a study and say, when was the onset of panic disorder? You know, um, But, but I, I, I'll be the first to admit that I don't think that my response to veganism is typical. You know, there's definitely indications that vegetarianism and veganism is probably making people less resilient to mental stresses and more likely to have mental problems. I think that's true. But it's not the typical case that someone goes vegan and then what I, what happened to me happens to them. Like no there would and granted, we don't have the data to know how many people stay vegan when they go vegan and how many people stop being vegan. We don't really have good data on that. And so it might be a, the vast majority of people don't make it that far when they go vegan. Um, but it's not the case that the vast majority of people go borderline psychotic. <laughs> so my suspicion is that I probably have a rare genetic disorder in the ability to synthesize something that is found at very high concentrations in organ meats and very low concentrations in vegan diets and is not included in most nutritional supplements including any of the ones I was taking when I was vegan. That's yeah. my suspicion. What are some other nutrients that you run the risk of becoming uh, deficient or at least insufficient in on a, on a, on a vegan diet? We can yeah. talk about creatine. Sure. There's, there's, um, there's quite a few, and there's basically two categories of them. 
One is things that are just lower in plant products or less absorbable in plant products compared to animal products. And the other is things that actually aren't there because the forms that we need require metabolic conversions from things in plant food. So and it, let's start with that, that second category. So metabolic conversions, that's a pretty narrow scope of things. We have vitamin A is one. Uh, so you get carotenoids from, such as beta carotene from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables, and you can turn those into retinol, which is the animal-based form of vitamin A that we need in our bodies. We need retinol, the animal form of vitamin A, to not be vitamin A deficient, um, and uh, we don't need the carotenoids. They might have positive health benefits, but in, in terms of preventing vitamin A deficiency, that's just a property of being able to convert them. And... Being a bad converter genetically is very common. So if you take a room of 100 people and you split them in half, you could say the half on the right is the good converters, half on the on the left is the bad converters. Wow. On average, the left half is has a two-fold reduction in their ability to get vitamin A from plant foods compared to the right half. Wow. But then if you go to that left half and you split them in half, the extreme left half has a four times less ability to get vitamin A from plant foods as the best converters on the right. Wow. So we're talking about really common, really big declines in the ability to get vitamin A from plant foods. And that's just genetics. Is there like a specific well-defined SNP that people can look at and to determine whether or not they're, they're you know, good converters or, or bad converters? There's a well-defined gene, but not a well-defined SNP. So BCO1 is the common abbreviation for the enzyme that's involved there, but there's a bunch of SNPs in it. And so... Um, you know, every few years, there's a new paper where they discover another six or seven SNPs in mm -hmm. it. And so you can get a, a number of third-party reporting from 23andMe or Ancestry raw data files will give you six or seven of those SNPs, but it's um, it's not ready for prime time. So it. uh, we, it's just, we don't have the ability to really like, for, first of all, we cannot rule out that you're a bad converter based on all on any of those. And then also... We don't have really good data of how they all combine. You know, like if, if you take the known, uh, so for me, if you take the known reductions in in each SNP um, of my ability to get vitamin A from plant foods and you sum them up, all the ones that I have, then you get negative 125%, which would mean either, well, it obviously doesn't mean anything because that obviously isn't true. But like if it, if, if it were true, it would mean that like I convert retinol to carotenoids or it would mean <laughs> or it would mean that every carrot that i eat robs me of vitamin a right you know like it is it's obviously you can't sum them like that because right. it doesn't make any sense but um but it's not just genetics it's also like your thyroid health uh, your gastrointestinal health your sufficiency or insufficiency of three or four other nutrients heavy metal toxicity just a whole host of things independent of genetics that are layered on top of your genetics that determine whether you're a good converter or a bad converter. And so, um, look, it's like, it's, it's, it's an insurance policy to get the basic requirement of vitamin A from animal foods and then eat all the red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables that you want. Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, you, if you don't have health insurance, you don't have car insurance, there's no guarantee that you're going to get run over by a bus or that, you know, whatever, like whatever, but like, it's called insurance for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, look, I don't know if you're going to go psychotic when you're vegan, but it's a good insurance policy to not go vegan, you know? Um, so, okay, so vitamin A is one. And then 
that same principle can be applied to vitamin B6 and can be applied to the essential fatty acids. Um, those are the big ones that fall into that category. Then there are other things that are just lower in plant foods. So zinc, for example, um, the best sources of zinc are oysters, beef, and cheese, and those aren't vegan. Then on top of that, zinc is about five times more absorbable from animal foods than from plant foods because the principal inhibitor of zinc absorption is phytate, which is found in whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, and also because animal protein increases zinc absorption. So um, if you look at the World Health Organization, they say half the planet is vulnerable to clinical zinc deficiency. Mm. And the overwhelming dietary pattern associated with it is one that's low in animal products and high in plant products. Mm. Um, it's not saying plants are bad. It's just you're way more likely to become zinc deficient if you're not eating animal products and you are eating a lot of plant products. Mm. Um, so uh, so zinc, zinc is a big one where the levels are just different. There's a lot of other ones that are that are not as pronounced as zinc, but they're still quite significant. So, for example, riboflavin. If you look at the number one source of riboflavin, it's liver. And then after that, you know, like if liver is is uh, the is at the top tier. Imagine these tiers on like a how tall are we? Um, let's say a six foot spectrum okay so liver's up at the top of six feet and then down at like chest height if you're a six foot person so a few couple of people with that you have kidney um kidney heart and almonds and then um at like waist height you start having all the other good sources of riboflavin and so um you can eat a ton of almonds and you can get like pretty good there but liver's off the table Kidney and hearts off the table. Most of the top tier foods are off the table if you're if you're vegetarian or vegan. And so if you look at the data, vegetarians and vegans are three times more likely to have biochemical evidence of riboflavin deficiency compared to omnivores. Now, you know the average omnivore is not eating from those top tiers anyway. Um, right. You know. Yeah. So it's it's not a, a death sentence to be one or the other. It's not deterministic. It's just a probability. Uh, that you just need to be much more careful about planning those things. Well, the other thing, I was reviewing uh, some research from uh, Donald Davis at the University of Texas who basically did that study of uh, the nutrient content of our produce over that 50-year window, and he found that for riboflavin in particular, there was a 38% decline in riboflavin content in our oh, produce wow. from, I believe it was 1950 to 1999. So, I mean, if you're trying to get riboflavin from, from, from vegetables, I mean, this is another, this is in particular... Uh, a nutrient that has become kind of like, you know, it's gone MIA just yeah. due to our, you know, monoculture and any number of factors that, mm. that place uh, the growing, you know, the yield of our produce over their uh, nutrient value. Yeah. Interesting. There's, uh, there's another category that should be mentioned, which is things that aren't essential nutrients that we need to synthesize, that there could be variations in synthesizing. So this is very similar to the nutrients that involve metabolic conversions, but this is um, this is things that you would ordinarily not think are nutrients that you could have variations in your ability to synthesize. So cholesterol is an example. Um, we make our own cholesterol. We shouldn't need to consume cholesterol in food, but there are some people who have defects in cholesterol synthesis. And to have 
powerfully defective cholesterol synthesis is uh, fatal to an embryo. So you don't see, uh, as an example, there's Smith-Lumley-Oppitt syndrome or SLOS. This is only one in 60,000 live births because it's fatal to almost all pregnancies. And when someone's born, they have severe neurological problems, retardation, autism, severe digestive problems, severe immune problems, aggressive and self-injurious behavior, uh, major problems in the eyes. Now, this is only one in 60,000 births, but the carriers is 1% of some populations and 3% of other populations. And there's not a lot of research on the carriers, but the carriers have basically their cholesterol levels are cut in half. And there's one study showing that they have an increased risk of violent suicide, which kind of parallels with the increased risk of aggressive and, and suicidal or self-injurious and aggressive behavior in SLOS patients. Um, and so you can imagine that like at least 1% of the population probably wouldn't have... Oh, I should mention the treatment for SLOS is dietary cholesterol. There's an FDA-approved supplement of cholesterol wow. for SLOS. <laughs> and they used to treat them with eggs and cream. But what they found was because cholesterol is needed for bile acid production, which is needed to absorb fat-soluble things, it was really difficult to get the cholesterol absorbed because the, the their lack of cholesterol was causing them to not be able to absorb cholesterol. Mm. And so you were trying to pound as much as you could with cream and eggs, and it was the best you could do. But then when they were able to just give them pure cholesterol at a higher dose, that proved to be a lot easier. And plus that way you're not, you're not you know, if eggs and cream have so much fat in them that if your fat absorption is really bad, you're getting like, in order to get a few hundred milligrams of cholesterol, you're just giving them this fat bomb of hundred grams of fat that they can't absorb, and they're going to get diarrhea from it. Oh god! So with it, with this cholesterol, with pure cholesterol, you can get whatever you can absorb without putting so much stress on the fat digestion machinery. Um, so if cholesterol is curative to these, uh, to or not curative, but very powerfully beneficial in this case, then you could speculate that 1% to 3% of the population out there isn't making enough cholesterol for optimal health and the cholesterol that they're getting in their diet is helping them be in pretty good shape. Wouldn't that be something that would become immediately apparent on a blood lab, though? I mean, if you had, like, you know, pathologically low cholesterol levels. Well, what do you define as pathologically low? I mean, my total cholesterol when I was a vegan was 106. Hmm. Total that's cholesterol. That's total pretty, cholesterol, yeah. pretty damn low. That's pretty wow. low. Yeah. Yeah. So is that pathological? I don't know. Well, I, I was patholo- unusual. <laughs> I was I was a pathology <laughs> you when, were. when it was that low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I I don't know if it was if it caused that. But um, and and then so then there then there are things that are just like mixes of those categories. So pantothenic acid, for example, um, there is a very rare genetic disorder in the ability to take pantothenic acid, which is a vitamin B five and turn it into enzymatic cofactors that we use, which are 4-phosphopantothene and coenzyme A. And, uh, you know, probably anyone who's had any biochemistry knows what coenzyme A is. Probably no, almost no one listening knows what 4-phosphopantothene <laughs> is. But anyway, they, these, uh, without going into all those details, these are the active forms that we need. And, um, and 
in the rare disorders, there's severe neurological problems that are completely treatable in the animal models if you just feed them coenzyme A and, or you just feed them 4-phosphopantothene. Well, 85% of B5 in foods is coenzyme A and 4-phosphopantothene, mm. the kind that cures that disease. Mm. And what we don't know is, yes, this disorder is like one to three out of every million people, but is it the case that 20 or 30% of the general population has a 20% decrease in that enzyme? I don't know. But if it is, then there might be a lot of us that that will be hurt if we don't get our B5 from food where it comes prepackaged in those forms that that we need, that we're not able to do the conversions. And then if you look at what foods it's in... Um, the forms of B5 that we need are highest in nutritional yeast, which is, uh, which is probably considered vegan, certainly mm. not an animal food. Um, but then next after that, so if this is a six-foot-tall person, the yeast is up at the top of the head, liver is, is at the chest, and then like everything else is at the waist or below. Mm. In fact, actually, other organ meats and some other obscure foods are at the waist, and then everything else is at the knees and below. Um, and so... Yes, you can be a vegan. You can get three tablespoons of nutritional yeast and you're probably going to be set. But if you're not doing that uh, and you're relying on a multivitamin that just has pantothenic acid in it or your B-complex, um, et cetera, et cetera, then you're, um, then you're not, you're not going to be getting enough. And so it's, it isn't a simple um, vegan versus omnivore thing because you can get it from nutritional yeast. It's just that when when your non-animal sources of something are so obscure, there's a high probability you're not going to be eating that thing yeah. when you're a vegan or a vegetarian. I think the key takeaway, I mean, is that by, you know, some people in the vegan community will say that, you know, by merely taking the B12 supplement, because it's the one essential uh, nutrient that we know that we can't get from um, plants, that they are basically checking all their boxes. But what I'm taking away is that trying to basically play this cat and mouse game of various independent nutrients um, is setting yourself up for failure for one, but it's ultimately an exercise in futility because we evolved with food. We didn't evolve with these single isolated nutrients. And you're the nutrients that you're bringing up, you're citing research that some research, some, you know, scientists somewhere was able to find the money to study, but there's probably countless of the examples of these nutrients where, you know, they might not necessarily be, uh, essential, but they could be conditionally essential. They could, you know, so... I think that's uh, that's really, it's such a great argument for omnivory. Yeah, I think the way that I think about it is like insurance before. Yeah. You, you don't know that you're not going to be able to do well in a vegan diet, but it's, um, what what are the, what are someone's goals when they go vegan and, and is veganism the best way to fulfill those goals? Well, it, that kind of depends on how you define them, right? So if, if your goal is, um, I want to abolish the consumption of animal products, 100%, no nuance. Well, you got to go vegan. <laughs> but, but you know, most people care about, you. like if you talk to them a little bit, they care, it's actually other things that they care about. So maybe they, um, maybe they're disgusted with factory farming or they don't want to eat organisms that they feel like they can look in their face and see them suffer. Well, there's different ways of addressing that. For example, you could get all your nutrients if 
you just ate shellfish. And like you can get way more of many of these nutrients from oyster from eating far fewer oysters than red meat, right? Mm-hmm. Like so zinc beef is a great source of zinc, but you can eat an oyster a day and get your zinc needs, whereas you're gonna have to eat quite a bit of beef every day to get your zinc needs. Mm-hmm. So you can get away with eating far fewer animal products and ones that like oysters don't have faces. I'm pretty sure that oysters don't have any kind of sophisticated interpretation of pain. You know, like there's, uh, it's it's probably the case that like plant some plants like think more than more than oysters do. You know, <laughs> um, and so and so is that is that your concern? If so, you can have a much better insurance policy by eating oysters. Is your concern that you think that you know you think that T. Colin Campbell's argument that we should eat only 2% animal products and, and that it's easier to eat vegan. Um, well, if you can get so much nutrition from an oyster a day, like you can eat your 2% animal products and be in a much better nutritional place by using that 2% wisely than you, than you would be by, by doing what he says in that book, which is if 2% is best, it's easier to just eat 0%. Or Joel Furman, who says in his book that um, you have to eat 90% of your diet as good food, which is all vegan fruits and vegetables mostly, and then 10% junk, like that can be hamburgers, that can be candy. Um, well, if you take that 10% and you actually allot it to useful animal products, that's puts you in a much better place. And so I think people should just think more, more carefully. And then, of course, if you're opposed to factory farming, like obviously, like seek out you know, pasture raised animals that you find, you know, investigate the issue yeah. and make sure that the farms are treating them the, the way you want to. There's no matter your goals, unless you're just absolutely ideological, there's a bit, there's a way to be, to have better insurance against deficiencies and imbalances in a non-absolute, non-vegan way. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, what about the fact that if you have loved ones in your life, you know, don't you want to show up and be the best person that you can be for the people in your life that mean something to you and be in the best state of mind and be the healthiest so that you can live the longest and have the longest health span? I mean, that's an argument, right? Like, I don't think anything goes above that, at least for me personally. Yeah. It's uh, it's wild. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because, um, you know, we have limited time, but I feel like you know, I definitely want your brain. Like, I wish I could just plug in and like download all of your knowledge. Um, I am a nerd for like the uh, the never ending obesity discourse online. Yep. You know, like what causes us to become fat, so on and so forth. And there's like this continuum, right, of the of seco calories in, calories out proponents, and then there's the carbohydrate insulin model. People that are like, it's all about the carbs. You know, cut carbs out and. Um, obesity wouldn't necessarily be a problem. So I want to get your take on that argument and that discussion and kind of where you fit in between those two uh, lines of thought. Sure. I think that seco calories in, calories out is is true physiologically and that that's a little... It's, it's a truism that's kind of like gravity. So like um, if you're... It, it doesn't, if you're trying to do something, if you're trying to get from one place to another, or you're trying to launch a rocket into the air, you're trying to invent flight, um, stating gravity doesn't really get you anywhere. But if you're trying to launch a rocket or invent flight on the basis that you don't believe in gravity, 
you're probably going to get messed up along the way, right? So um, I think that I think that approaches that denigrate or dismiss calories in, calories out are going to get a lot of people in trouble because they're not based on sound reasoning of the actual physiology. And on the flip side, approaches that only look at calories in, calories out are missing the core things we need to understand about human behavior and what creates a sustainable program for someone to lose weight. So there are many, 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 many things that have been shown to cause weight loss. And maybe some of them are better than others on average, or maybe some of them are better for insulin resistant people than, um, than others are. But, you know, if you're just talking about weight loss, like there's just dozens of ways to lose weight. And the question becomes, uh, well, first, why? Why? Because they all, in some way or another, created a sustainable caloric deficit. Then the question becomes, how do you make a sustainable caloric deficit? Because one of the biggest problems in any weight loss approach is the lack of compliance over time. People tend to regress over the long term in every approach tested. So the real question, the real art here is understanding human psychology and how behavior is impacted physiologically. Like certainly if one thing makes you more hungry than another thing, then um, that's a physiological effect that's going to drive your eating behavior. We need to understand all of those, you know, psychological and physiological nuances that affect behavior to understand how to allow how to empower someone to create a sustainable caloric deficit over time and um there are some people who so there's in terms of the carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity there are various permutations and some of them intersect with that so like one of the arguments that comes out is that um you eat carbs, you're going to drive your blood sugar low, and that's, you know, you're going to have roller coasting blood sugar that's going to cause you to overeat because um, your blood sugar is going, to, like, if you create too much insulin, your blood sugar spikes, uh, excuse me, drops, then that's going to make you hungry. And I think there's some plausibility there. I think that is happening in some people, but uh, but I don't think it's, I don't think that's the main thing that causes people to overeat. I think that um, I think people I think people have a ten the main drivers of people overeating are number one, people have very easy access to hyperpalatable food that just is a little too delicious, a little too addictive, and a little too easy to get. Like we don't have to work to get our food anymore. We're gone are the days where we had to hunt something <laughs> before before we'd eat it. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think that um, we've kind of designed the environment to be really easy to not get any activity and make it actually pretty hard to get activity. It's sort of like the opposite of our ancestral environment that um, you have to make it an event to go to the gym or you know take time out from your work schedule to get activity in. I think that um, I think that's a big thing, and um, I think those are the I think those are the the primary things. And I think a low carbohydrate diet can be very effective for some people. Um, mainly by when you restrict anything in the diet, your people are going to eat less. Um, the more variety there is in the diet of 
factors that make diets pleasurable, yep. the more you're going to eat. Um, I think those are the big things. Is Would you characterize insulin as the quote-unquote fat storage hormone? Uh, in this context or in general? Um, well, what, what, does, what role does ins- insulin play? Okay, so in the big picture, I don't... I, I would not I would characterize insulin as a metric of energy availability and versatility. So and I'll I'll bring this back to obesity in a second. So um to some extent any energy input even fat is going to have some ability to make you make more insulin. And at the level of the pancreas, or at the level of the pancreatic beta cell, what's making that beta cell make insulin is the first and foremost, the total energy availability in that cell. It's actually the ATP level in that cell that's driving insulin release. Um, so getting energy into that beta cell is causing that beta cell to make insulin as an index of how much energy is available. But it's also true that there are some things that you can do with carbohydrate that you can't do with fat. And some of those you can do, you can use protein for. So like for, in terms of energetic versatility, the number of things that you can use glucose for is highest. The number of things you can use fat for is lowest and protein is kind of in the middle. And you see that play out in the insulin response. So if you eat mostly fat, you're going to have lowest insulin levels. If you eat more protein, you're going to have higher insulin levels, but you're going to have the highest insulin levels on a diet that's dominated by carbohydrate. But you're going to have lower insulin levels if you don't eat anything than if you eat, you know, 50% higher than your caloric needs of fat and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a combination of um, of how much energy do you have plus how versatile is that energy. And having a lot of energy and having it be versatile enough to fulfill all your needs, that's when your body decides, I got enough, yeah. right? So that's that's basically what insulin is signaling. And what you see is that you can pick your thing that insulin does and describe it that way. Like you can describe it as a fat storage hormone or you can describe it as a blood sugar regulator. It does those things, but there's so many things that insulin does that doesn't fit into that model. For example, why does insulin make you make more thyroid hormone? Hmm, I don't know. It's not to lower your blood glucose and it's not to store fat. Right. Why does insulin make you make more glutathione, which is the master antioxidant of the cell? Uh, I don't know. It's I, not, that it's not, surprises me. It's actually. not. It's not to. It's not to regulate your blood sugar, and it's not to store fat. Right. Um, I could keep listing those things out. Well, I can explain it extremely well with my model. Yeah. What's um, your model? My model is insulin is an index of how much energy you have and how versatile that energy is. Hmm. So if you have all the energy that you need and all the different types of energy that you need, you're going to upright, upregulate thyroid hormone because when do you, because what thyroid hormone does is it increases your metabolic rate and it increases your energy expenditure in everything. And when do you want to increase your energy expenditure in investments? When you have all the energy you need. Right. Um, glutathione is part of the antioxidant defense. It's not, not just glutathione, it's not just insulin, but in net totality, you engage in more antioxidant defense and more repair processes when you are well fed. And that's because those are energy intensive processes. That's kind of, that's contrary to conventional wisdom, right? Like in the, in the research on fasting, like the fasting mimicking diet and 
Isn't there? Isn't there? It might be contrary to how some people are describing that in the popular literature, but it's definitely not contrary to the scientific literature. So, what the scientific literature is very clear about is that autophagy is. Um, so there, you can think of as a bifurcation of two different types of investments in your health. Um, during the fasting state, autophagy is dominant. Autophagy is when you break down things that are either useless or are wastes of energy mm. or are, are bad. And that's when you clean house. And antioxidant defense and repair is highest in the fed state. Mm because those are energy intensive processes. And so it's like both of those are good for your long-term health. Like what you would like to do if you want to be really healthy for a long time is clean out all the junk and put good stuff in and take care of the good stuff, right? Like if you want your apartment to look really nice, every once in a while you're going to be like, I don't use this thing anymore. I don't have room for half of this stuff in my closet because uh, I don't use it anymore. Like you got to get rid of that. Yeah. But then you got to wash your clothes and you got to... Um, clean things or hire someone to do it and polish the wood and all that stuff. Right. So like, um, you're not going to hire someone to clean the house when you have no money. Um, but, uh, well, you're probably not going to throw out half the stuff in your closet when you have no money. So that's a bad analogy. You'll sell it. You can sell it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're selling it, right. <laughs> like, yeah, perfect. So, so you might sell half the stuff in your closet when you have no money, but you're not going to hire someone to clean the house. Um, but hopefully after you sell half that stuff in your closet, hopefully times are a little bit better. Now you now you have more money to buy stuff that you actually really want and and invest in protecting it. And that's kind of what you're cycling in. And the this is like if you were a business, right? If you had easy money all the time, you would just grow and grow and grow and have all this bureaucratic bloat, and then you'd get weighed down by just having too much of everything all the time. Yeah. Um, if you're exposed to recessions or to, to downturns in money, you 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 make yourself hyper efficient during the downturn, and then you get capital and to invest in what you want. If you never have a downturn, you never get efficient. If you never have any capital, you never do anything, right? Mm -hmm. So what we are designed to do to have long-term health is to cycle between the fasted state and the fed state. The fast state, we break down useless junk, wastes of energy. In the fed state, we invest energy in the things that are really useful. Um, so we clean house, rebuild, clean, rebuild, right. clean, rebuild, right? And so... Um, so insulin is a signal is one of the uh, one of several important signals about having the energy to invest in the energy intensive part of that cycling right and so um and so like if you look at the totality of what insulin does it's only well explained as an index of energy status it's not it's it's Yes, if you look at one thing like blood sugar regulation, the more glucose you have, the more insulin you have, that lowers your blood glucose, prevents it from prevents you from getting hyperglycemia. That's totally true. It's just that that can't explain ninety percent of what the other things that insulin does, right? right? And so, if you want to, if you're looking at the carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity and you say insulin um, promotes fat storage, well, yeah, that's true. Um, but it, but it, uh, that also doesn't explain 90% of the other things that insulin does. And so I think it's important to have that big picture perspective on insulin in terms of the actual, uh, practical question of the carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity. I think, you know, your question is insulin a fat storage hormone. I think yes, biochemically, but practically no. So 
the reason that insulin promotes fat storage, in my view, is that you get more insulin when you have more calories and especially when you have more carbohydrate. And you want to store fat when you have more calories and more carbohydrate. What happens um, in terms of the carbohydrate is, let's ignore the calories and just say, why do you get more insulin when you eat more carbohydrate and less when you eat more fat, right? Um, some, you know, some people would look at this and they would say, well, carbohydrate is toxic and you want to get rid of the carbohydrate. I look at it and I say, you can, there's, like I said before, there's things that you can do with carbohydrate that you can't do with other things. So your preference is going to be to burn that as your primary source. Um, you could also look at storage capacity and actually probably storage capacity is the main thing that's going on here. You can store, um, maybe a couple days of carbohydrate in your body. Definitely not more than that, probably less than that you can store uh, at least months, if not year. I mean, months without eating, you're, at some point you're going to get uh, sick enough to not carry out this experiment any longer. But you can ex- store at least months of energy supply as fat. And so, um, and so if you're eating carbohydrate, like you're, there's only so many things you can do with it. You can burn it right now. Or you can store it as glycogen until your glycogen is full, which right. which is, you know, it's probably close to full for most people most of the right. time, right? And so there's not much else you can do with it. And so if you can store fat easily and you can't store carbohydrate easily, you're going to burn the carbohydrate for energy. And so no matter your, your perspective of why, um, and it, maybe it's a combination of all those three, right? Like yeah. too much glucose around is going to be toxic. Uh, there are things that you can do better with it. And ultimately, you just can't store it, right? Yeah. So... Um, uh, so you're gonna dis- you're gonna want to displace the fat. Uh, if you eat 500 calories of carbohydrate, you're gonna want to burn 500 calories of carbohydrate and not burn 500 calories of fat. Right. And so you're gonna put the 500 calories of fat in your fat tissue. So the question is, the question isn't is insulin a fat storage hormone? The question is, is insulin disproportionately causing more fat to be stored than it is causing carbohydrate to be burned? And that is, uh, that, I mean, that requires specific targeted evidence to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. That's not, uh, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to assume that the body is set up kind of half logically, you're going to assume that it's going to even out because why, I mean, th- like the carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity is kind of like a way of the logic of it is sort of like. I'm going to assume that the body is not too smart and I'm going to fool it into thinking I should lose weight when it wants me to keep it on. There's there's something about like you're sort of assuming that the body is like pretty stupid <laughs> because why wouldn't the body want to store energy in proportion to how much energy it should store? You know, like the logical way of making that system is I have a certain amount of fat. I have a certain amount of carbohydrate. It would be ideal for me to burn this for this reason at this yeah. time. I'm going to store the remainder, right? So, like, it just, like, evolutionarily, logically, physiologically, teleologically, whatever logically you want to talk about, it just doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense that the body would be set up to accidentally store way too much fat because you were taking in carbohydrate for fuel. Um, but then, you know, of course, there's, people debate to the cows come home what's the right way to actually tease that out in the evidence yeah so i mean if you're eating a a a moderate 
if you're eating a, a diet that's hypocaloric, you know, it's you're consuming fewer calories and you're burning, and you're eating carbohydrates within that context, and you're causing your insulin to be elevated, would you say that like when the insulin is elevated, it is it is pushing you into a state of carbohydrate oxidation as opposed to fat oxidation, but because it's it occurs proportionally, that's not going to matter in terms of your weight loss. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you have more carbohydrate, you preferentially burn the carbohydrate, you store the fat. Now, is there a benefit to um, being in a, in, a, in a state that's like allowing greater fat oxidation as opposed to carbohydrate oxidation? Like if you take two diets and they're controlled for protein, for example, do you see any uh, benefit in terms of being sort of higher or lower on the carbohydrate spectrum? I mean, maybe in light of ketones and the research that we have for ketones on, on brain health, cognitive function, things like that? Or does it ultimately not matter, especially when you're a state in a state of negative calorie balance? I think it's a case-by-case basis. So I don't think that the data indicate that ket- or I think it's running way ahead of the data to say that ketones just in general are good for brain health. I think what's true is that there are a number of neurological conditions where they are protective, but those are specific to those cases. Right. So there's, I mean, this is most clearly shown in seizures where we have a century of experience with this, uh, probably less than we should have. But but basically the leading hypothesis for why the ketogenic diet is effective in, in childhood epilepsy um, I say childhood. It's all. It also is effective for adults. There's much less data on that, but there's some. Um, is is probably mostly comes down to the fact that ketones lower glutamate levels and increase GABA levels. And there's other things you could say about it, but that's probably the main thing. Mm-hmm. And glutamate, too much glutamate, not enough GABA, or too much glutamate activity and not enough GABA activity, can cause a seizure. And that's that's one of the things that that uh, that ketones do. And there are a bunch of other psychiatric disorders that involve imbalances between glutamine and GABA. Alzheimer's and, disease, ALS. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure we could create a big list of, of that. And so I, I think that it makes a lot of sense to say ketones might be effective in those, in those cases. It's still a case-by-case basis. And in fact, if you look at seizures, it, it's not... Um, there's very little ability to know how many people who's going to benefit from the ketogenic diet. It's not a it's not a hundred percent thing. It's not even a ninety percent thing. Um, I mean, the same thing is true. It's, it's it's competitive with drugs. It's just that we don't really understand seizures well enough to subtype people according to who who will benefit from what. And there's a lot of trial and error involved. And so I don't see why it wouldn't be the case with Alzheimer's and with um, any of the other things that we could list. Uh, but I, anyway, I, I think that that is, um, that's a benefit of a ketogenic diet is that it's a good tool to decrease glutamate and increase GABA. And so when the, you know, when you have a hammer, um, the thing you don't want to do is assume everything's a nail. Right. The thing you do want to do is look for the nails and hit the right ones. Right. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. Well, we're almost uh, we're almost out of time. Um, I've just got one last question because you're obviously you're such a genius uh, 
you know, in all things nutrition, what is your... I must be eating those foods you recommend. You're eating the foods that I... <laughs> you probably are. Um, what is your diet, you know, personally? Like, what is your diet and, uh, you know, eating schedule and, like, just, you know, what's 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 your current regimen look like? It's it's always in flux. Um, most recent... And, and I, I'm on a little deviation from this right now, so I'll explain both. Uh my long-term most recent incarnation of my diet has been mostly um, either some meat or some eggs with some legumes, with some mixed vegetables, um, and maybe a piece of fruit at most of my meals, usually eating three or four meals a day, uh, with fresh vegetable juice in the morning. And... Um, and then may, like maybe a snack at night, usually something involving the least amount of actual junk that I could have. Uh, right now I'm working on some digestive issues. I have, uh, I've all, I've always had some H. pylori that comes and goes and, um, I'm, I'm kind of eating low FODMAP right now while I do some, uh, antimicrobial protocols to deal with that. And so right now my diet is like kind of weird. Like uh, I'll take some white rice and I'll put some meat in it and I'll heat it up and then I'll put a bunch of nutritional yeast in it and then I'll take some liver capsules and some <laughs> other supplements and stuff like that and drink some teas that I made. But uh, that's a pretty short-term thing. So probably I'll be probably be eating a lot closer to what I had described just uh before that in six weeks from now yeah do you i mean how much of your time do you spend thinking about macros and calories and like what's i try to think about it as little as possible right and actually i um i so i came out with this video called the robot diet <laughs> and it was uh it was sort of a joke um not really a joke it was a practical thing there are some benefits eating the same thing all the time but um but it, it kind of named a, as a joke about how robotic my own diet is. But uh, when I'm here, it's like super functional and I just, uh, I don't, I don't like to waste mental energy on what I'm eating. So I kind of ha have a system where it's mostly just like, I take these three things from the fridge, I mix them up, I heat them up over here and I, and then I get out, get it done with it. I like that. Yeah. It's kind of like the Steve Jobs approach. I don't know. How, yeah. For his clothes. Yeah. The yeah. way that he handled his clothes, right? That's how, yeah. That's how I handle my food. And then, you know, everything changes if I have guests over if or if I go out on a date or if I go out with friends or something. Well, it depends which friends. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Do you just find yourself naturally eating a eucaloric diet, meaning, you know, in line with your, with your oh, energy expenditure? Um, that cycles and it depends what my goals are. So right now I actually do find that. Um, but I think that's because I'm eating a little bit strange and hypo palatable right now. <laughs> um, one of the things that I've had a problem with over time is that my, my appetite I think is fairly well regulated over the course of a week time frame where I might eat a little more than I need one day, eat a little bit less than I need one day, and it all kind of evens out over the course of weeks. But on a day-to-day -day basis, my appetite is not that precise. It's maybe precise within 300 calories. Mm. And the problem with that is that I have had really bad insomnia in my life, and I don't have insomnia at all anymore, but one of the things 
one of the 10 or so things that has been key to getting rid of my insomnia has been eating enough food. And so if I'm going to eat enough, let's, let's say that my insomnia kicks in within a 200 calorie deficit and my appetite on a day-to-day basis is about 300 calories in its precision. And it's, you know, it's, it's perfect over the long term, but that day, what matters whether I fall asleep that day is that day that I eat enough food. And so that means that there's a huge risk that I will not fall asleep because I ate 300 calories less than I needed and 200 calorie deficit is the point where I'll get insomnia. And, um, and so what in the past, what would happen is I would find myself always erring on the side of eating too much because that was the only thing that could guarantee that I would fall asleep but that would mean that I get fat over time. <laughs> and so what I found is that tracking my food to understand what what is the what is my range for how many calories I can eat at, without being hungry and without losing sleep um and without but but with staying closer to a caloric deficit or to my break even point. And I would never have been able to do that without doing a lot of tracking. But now that I've done a lot of tracking, it's very easy to translate that into kind of a modular approach where I don't have to like log in an app how many lentils I'm eating. But I know that if I just like put 150 grams in my bowl, then like that that works, you know? Yeah. So I'll typic- like I typically will weigh things out just as a matter of, of – uh, um, a simple way to keep things consistent. Although now I'm not even doing that. Now I'm just like eyeballing things. Yeah. Super interesting, man. Chris, thank you so much for your, for your time. This was really wonderful. Where can listeners connect with you online? Like anything you're promoting these days? Yeah. Let us have it. Uh, all my stuff is at chrismasterjohnphd.com and I'm at chrismasterjohn on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, right now, the two big things that I think people would be interested in is um, if you just want to learn more about nutrients, I'm doing a free 30-day Vitamins and Minerals 101 course that people can subscribe to by email or Facebook Messenger. And the uh, the Facebook Messenger class is taught by Chris Masterbot, who is my baby bot. <laughs> It's a little more emoji-rich and joke-laden and interactive <laughs> on the Facebook Messenger version, but both versions are, are very educational. And this is designed for people who don't have a nutrition background and doesn't assume any more than a high school science education. And so it's really designed for people with no background, but people who have a background are generally finding it very valuable in terms of little nuggets of practical things. Um, so if you're, if you're beyond the, I just want to fix this rash on the, back of my elbow and you're into the I'm curious about all the nutrients thing then I think at pretty much any level you would like that course it probably takes uh, maybe 10 minutes max a day to read the lesson probably less than that for most people Um, so there's that and then the other big thing that I'm promoting now is um, I have a comprehensive system of managing nutritional status called testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. Mm. And this is for, uh, this isn't free. Um, but it's, uh, it's basically, I call it the cheat sheet because it's design. It's kind of like 
between a book and an app. So it's not something for most people that you would read cover to cover to like suck in all the information. It's basically like you, it's 78 pages long, but it's designed so that you only need to read like five of them. Jeez. So it just sort of leads you, it holds your hand through the process of first asking the question, if I want to do comprehensive management of my nutritional status, first of all, do I have plenty of money and plenty of time or am I limited in one of those things? And depending on whether you're more limited in money or more limited in time, it leads you down a different approach to the collecting the data. And then it helps you collect the data and then it gives you basically an algorithm that says, if this is X, do this and lead you to the right page to figure out an action plan. And, um, and so uh, that's, that's the, the super practical thing that people can use. And uh, I guess we can put links to those in the show notes. In the show people. notes, yeah. yeah. That's super exciting. I didn't know that you uh, you had that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the last question that gets asked to everybody on this show is uh, a bit more philosophical. Um, interpret it however you'd like. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? <laughs> um, so actually, that's like super appropriate question for me. So I... I've kind of designed my business model in my life to um, to create as much time for me, as much uninterrupted time for me to completely immerse myself in the science that I love to read and translate. And, um, and at the same time, I find both personality-wise that I'll become a pathological introvert if that's the only thing that I do. And also if I spend all my time on work, I'm going to burn out. And so I think to me, um, I guess being a genius life is number one to carve out enough time for your core genius function. The thing that, that really is your contribution to the world to carve out enough time to treat that as precious and protected and maximize your ability to do that. But then I think maybe part of being a genius is having the wisdom to know that you need to take some time off, that you need to engage the rest of your body, the rest of your mind, that you need to fill in some sensory experiences, give your body some attention, have some art, some romance, some adventure and things like that. Some might call that balance. Yeah. That sounds good. That sounds yeah, yeah. that sounds balance. pretty pretty genius to me well thank you so much chris again to all you guys out there listening in podcast land as always i value your time and attention take a moment please to share this episode on social media tag uh chris tag myself post it up on your instagram stories tweet out a link chris is also very active on twitter um and yeah spread the word about what we're doing here at the genius life that would be super appreciated all right guys much love peace